Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up, and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hello, it's Rob Moore here, and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur. I am very honoured and privileged to have with you uh, Mr. Joe Foster. I almost feel like saying Sir Joe Foster. We're an esteemed company here. The co-founder of Reebok, no less, obviously, hugely um, famous international Anglo-Saxon. So there's, there's English, American and German collaborative roots, I think, I believe in Reebok. So Joe, thanks for doing this interview. I'm very grateful. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for the invite. Pleasure. So maybe we could go back to the start. Um, maybe we could find out how you came up with the name Reebok and how the company was formed. Was it on a kitchen table? Was it a eureka moment? Was it a family legacy? Would love to hear. <laughs> well, funny enough, Rob, that's far, far, far away from the start. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> halfway through the story, Reba. Yeah. <clears throat> if you want to go to the start, it has to be with my grandfather. My grandfather was also called Joe Foster, and he was born in 1880, but he made for himself a pair of running shoes with spikes in 1895. Now in 1895, if anybody knew about spikes, I don't know. But what he did, he picked up an idea from his grandfather, because he used to go to his grandfather who was a, a cobbler down in Nottingham. And as a cobbler, not only did he repair shoes, he also repaired cricket boots. And cricket boots in those days had spikes in the bottom. And one can only assume that my grandfather said, uh, Granddad, why have these got spikes in the bottom? And the obvious answer was it gives them grip when they're bowling, when they're batting, when they're in the field. I think that must have been a light bulb moment for my grandfather because uh, he went back home, back to Bolton from Nottingham, and uh, he, was, he was a member of the local athletics club. Not a good runner, probably halfway down the field on most events, um, but he made himself this pair of spikes. And uh, he came a very unlikely second in his next race which raised a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. Not only did it raise attention, it also started a business. So he obviously made shoes for his club mates and then for, for local teams around about. And uh, by 1900, by the time he was 20, he had his own business. And he called it, of course, J.W. Foster. And uh, by 1904, I mean, the man was a bit of a genius. He, he knew how to influence people. But by 1904, Al Shrub broke three world records in one race in Glasgow at Ibrox Stadium in his shoes. The second uh, decade, of course, of the 20th century, we had World War I. That time they were repairing army boots, uh, which my father used to tell me was scrubbing the mud of Flanders and the blood off the boots in order to repair them. But by the time the twenties came along, <clears throat> and that was that, that was my grandfather's belly park. Uh, during the twenties, he supplied probably most of the Olympic teams, 
certainly a lot of Olympic runners. He had loads and loads of gold medals. And you've heard of Chariots of Fire. I'm sure you've heard of Chariots of Fire. Well, yeah. yeah. That was about three athletes, Eric Liddell, Harold Abraham, and Lloyd Burley. And they were immortalized in that film. Well, they won their gold medals in Joe Foster's shoes. So that's the type of business he had. Unfortunately, he died in 1933, well, 18 months before, 15 months before I was born. But I happened to be born on his birthday. So grandmother, of course, insisted I brought my name with me and I'd be called Joe. So that's why I'm called Joe Foster. And, uh, okay, four months, well, four years after I, I'm born, of course, we have World War II. So for the first, well, for six years of my life until 1945, uh, we're having a war. Okay, you're brought up with whatever. But you're a kid. What do you know? That's what you expect. You know, you don't, you're not expecting anything different. So that was a... I, I would have thought fairly, fairly normal upbringing, but of course it wasn't. <laughs> it was a fairly unnormal upbringing. Um, but then from 10 years on until I was uh, 17, education, things going normal. At 17, I had a couple of years at, uni- at uh, college. I went into the family company, and I was there for one year only. Because at 18, in those days, you went into the force. You had to do two years armed forces. As it happened, my brother, although he uh, was four years older than me, um, he'd been deferred, and we both went at the same time. I suppose that was a bit disruptive, as you might say, to the company, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they seemed to manage anyway. Um, but we came out of the, uh, the armed forces, and we came back. And, of course, we'd been away. Mother didn't make you breakfast anymore. She didn't do you this, that, the other, look after you, um, you know, normal family, everybody's sort of together. You spend two years looking after yourself. You learn an awful lot. And we came back to look at our company and, and come back to the company, and we saw a very failing company. It was still making the same shoes made in the 1930s, and they were not progressive. Jeff had been to Germany. In Germany is seen Adidas, Puma, and what they were doing, how they were moving along. So in 1955, when uh, we came back out of the uh, forces, we were trying to say to my father and uncle, who'd taken the business over from, uh, from their father, um, come on, we need, to, we need to progress. We need to have a plan. We need some marketing. We need some new designs. In fact, we, we need to get into this business. But uh, for whatever reason, they just did not get on together. In fact, not only didn't they go together, they were feuding more than they were doing anything else. And Jeff and I, on a couple of occasions, really had to drag them apart, literally drag them apart and go, come on, come on, you know, what are you doing? So what chance had we got? What chance had that company got? Well, we're not going to go anywhere. By 1958, we'd done a couple of uh, years night school at college, um, learning more about shoemaking. We knew how to make the shoes fossil making. But they were back in 1933. We needed to get up to date. Plus also what we needed was to uh, meet people, people in the business, in the industry. Because uh, when we decided to leave, we needed machinery, we needed all sorts of things. Uh, Anyway, in 1958, we decided that was it. We'd had enough. We were still young. I was 23. Jeff was 25. We were indestructible. You know, what can happen? Yeah. (laughs) We can't fail. 
so off we went and we started without any money, but with a, a lot of guts and whatever you have, and uh, stupidity maybe, you know. It's, uh, it, uh, however, we started off in business and we started off as Mercury Sports Footwear. And we, we like that name, Mercury, yeah. And we had the, the little running man there as our uh, logo. 18 months later, the accountant said, uh, Joe, said, you, you seem to be doing all right. You're making a little bit of money. You're not doing bad, but you better register that name. What? Why? Well, if somebody else starts making running shoes or cycle shoes or anything and they want to call it Mercury, you can't really stop them. And you'd have to go to court in order to prove that you were there first. So he said, go see a patent agent and get your name registered, which I did. <laughs> but we found out that the name was already pre-registered, that we couldn't register it. British Shoe Corporation had beaten us to it by many years. And although, although they said that we, we could have it, they would sell it to us for £1,000. Uh, we didn't have a £1,000 in those days. It was <laughs> just an impossible thought, £1,000. So uh, we said, he pointed through the window of his office and he pointed to a sign, Kodak. And Kodak, I said, what's, what's with Kodak? He said, well, Kodak is an invented name. It's just made up. It doesn't mean anything. So uh, you know, you're not likely to get any objections if you make a name up. Well, we sat around the table and we come up with lots of bird names, you know, we, Good, and animal names, you know, cheetah and things like that, falcon. And uh, it so happened in 1943, I had won a race at the local sports events, and I won a dictionary. And the dictionary was a Webster's Dictionary. And not many people, unless you're American, know Webster's Dictionary. <clears throat> but yes, it was an American dictionary. And, uh, and I thought, I like that letter R. I'm going to have a look at this. So I'm in my Webster's Dictionary flipping through R. Fortunately, R-E comes pretty quick. Like, you know, you don't have to get down to the and, – and I came across Reebok, R-W-E-B-O-K, small South African gazelle. Gazelle. Well, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> we'll have that. Let's have a look at that one. I'd have been in Oxford English Dictionary. I'd have been looking at R-H-E-B-O-K, and I – I don't think that would have been quite as attractive. Plus, it was a bit further down in the pages. Whether I'd had patience to go that far, I don't know. But I, went, I took this to the patent agent, and uh, I said, look, we've got 10 names here. I said, but we want that one, right, Reebok. So we, we need that one because, really, we've got to be in love with it. It's, it's got to be our passion. So do what you can. He came back, and he came back, and that was the only one, the only one that, um, that we could have. Uh, it was only the registrar. The registrar came in and said, look, we can only put you in part B of the register. Oh, what does that mean? I have not a clue. <clears throat> a, B, whatever. What does B mean? Well, it, it's the second tier because if somebody comes to me and says, uh, we're making shoes out of Reebok skin, can't stop them. Can't say, no, you can't do that. Oh, okay. However, 20 years later, the registrar came back and said, we've moved you. You know, in the A part of the register. Oh, great. He said, because now Reebok is a shoe. It's no longer an animal. So that's Reebok. Wow, what a, a story. Um, so you mentioned Jeff a couple of times. So for the people that are watching and listening that don't know, that's your brother. So yes. that brings us nicely into another one of my questions I have. Now, just to set the scene here, Joe, think we might do three sections. Think we might do your time at Reebok. 
your time after Reebok and what you've been doing since. And then we've got a quick fire round at the end, which we ask all of our guests. So, uh, yeah, you founded Reebok with your brother in 1958. But it's interesting that you and your brother were kind of playing peacemaker to your family members, yet you still went in business with a family member. And I know a lot of people talk about family member. Oh, you shouldn't go into business with your family. So how's it been working with family? And how do you manage that relationship of friends and family and business partners together? Well, <clears throat> for, for what it was, um, Jeff, Jeff enjoyed the factory. I didn't. Um, as my book, if you've read my book, my book is, I'm not a good shoemaker. Um, <laughs> And I hate running. So, <laughs> okay, in, in those first early years, yes, I did. And I still did the designing. <clears throat> I did the designing. We made shoes. But Jeff loved the factory. He just wanted to work in the factory. So Jeff was happy with that. And everything else was mine. You can do the marketing. You can do the sales. You can do the designing. You can do this. <clears throat> you can do all the other things. So that's how we, how we work together. And I can honestly say we, we, we never had a bad word with each other. We never fell out. There was always, you know, if we had something to talk about, we talked about it. it was, so we didn't have a problem. Which, And I can agree with what you're saying because, you know, people do say, you know, don't go into business with a friend. It doesn't matter if you make a friend out of a business uh, contact, but don't go into business with a friend. <clears throat> and it's the same with family. And probably family are worse, in fact, because family know too much about you. You know, you're too much involved, as it were. But um, Jeff and I were very good friends, but we didn't socialize together. You know, our social lives are totally different, uh, but we worked together. And uh, and uh, I think we'd seen also what happened with uncle and uh, father, how they were, how we knew that you can't run a business like that. So uh, it, it really worked good. Of course, the biggest problem in all this is that when we just about to break into America, well, I had broken it, I'd got the deal. And unfortunately, Jeff was taken ill and died. So, I mean, that was a very sad time. And, you know, he never saw just where we went with Reebok. But, um, <clears throat> and, it, and it, it created difficulties, but it also sort of relieved in some way. Because when you say you can't go in, uh, into business with family, um, we both married Jeans. Both of them were called Jean. Um, but I never got on with Jeff's wife at all. Never. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and my wife would quite often side with a bit, why are you doing this? Why are you going <laughs> to America? We can't afford that. So I, I'd always felt that whilst Jeff never got involved, I always felt that there was a pressure from the women that was, why are you doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. And, you, and you're coming up with ideas, it may have been stupid. I mean, a lot of my ideas must have been pretty stupid in those days and uh, a bit uh, a bit difficult to swallow. But, uh, I mean, the regrettable thing, Jeff died. And the thing that happened is that I then became the boss. So I didn't have anybody to question. And, and I could make the decisions right or wrong. And, of course, the best thing to do is make a decision. And uh, if you make a decision, you can change it. If it's wrong. Yeah. But, you know, that from that moment on, we just got to America and then it, and it grew. But it's a sad thing that, uh, that Jeff to die. But as far as family is concerned, I, I do agree. But I think Jeff and I were fairly exceptional in the fact that we've probably seen uh, the destructive manner of uh, our father and uncle. 
Hi, it's Rob here, interrupting you with something you may not know about me. I was one of the few people on the planet hand-selected by Facebook to pilot their new supporter program. It's a very small premium model where you can get exclusive content and advance notice or discount of new products and services. So this is what I've done for you. Not only can you get best discounts for any training that we might run, not only do you get notified first of any launches we do, we also do supporter meetups, supporter dinners, supporter WhatsApp groups where you have a, a deeper community. I do supporter only ask me anything. I do supporter only content and podcasts. We have a community of 2,500 supporters and I'd love to give you the chance to be one of those. I believe this is the best supporter program in the whole world. Find me a better one, but I don't think you will. So the link is bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. That's bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. I believe the gap between free content and paid content is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a lot of free content out there that's maybe not that good. And for just a few dollars a month, you can get the best content on business, on entrepreneurship, on starting up, on scaling up, on sales, on marketing, on the mindset of being an entrepreneur. So go to bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R right now. So it's funny you say that, Joe, because my business partner and I, we're both married to Gemma's and <laughs> our relationship is very similar to yours and Jeff's in that we were business partners first and became friends and we have very different roles in our company and we don't really have the same social life anymore. Our social life sort of went like that. And I think longevity is often in having different roles so you don't get in each other's way and you're not micromanaging each other. So if, if you think about a partnership, if two people do the same thing, one isn't needed and you have a clash. So I just wanted to sort of make that point that um, when you delineate roles and responsibilities, you actually make a good partnership. You don't need to be best friends and in each other's pockets. So, um, right, this is a fascinating story. I'd love to talk a bit about um, moving into America, if that's all right, um, Joe, because, um, you know, your, your family, I believe, are from Bolton. So, you know, breaking America must have been quite an exciting and challenging experience. So could you take us through that journey of basically growing what is now a global brand? Yeah. <clears throat> well, we, uh, we, in 1958, Jeff and I had started the company. and. We were too late to get into the soccer, the football market, because Adidas by then had come in and really tied up. And yeah, you go back to 1920, and we have uh, a replica letterhead now, and we, we send it out with the books. And grandfather was supplying 96 football and rugby teams. And all the football teams are all the teams you can mention in the Premiership, the Championship. You could go with Liverpool, Man City, Man United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham. All these teams, Rangers and Celtic, they were all supplied, and, and it's in print, supplied. These, these. So he, he went out, but by the time Jeff and I were looking at this, this was going to be too expensive. We, we could make football boots, of course we could, uh, and we could try and supply them. But I used to go around to retailers trying to sell my athletic shoes, and, and I'd go in and uh, go to the retailer. Not everyone, some were quite good, and I got on well with lots of retailers. Although I'm not, I'm not a good salesman. But I, I, I'd go in and 
quite a few of them would say, Reba, who's Reba? You were young, you were on down. Well, I'd give them an explanation. They said, why do I need Reebok? I've got Adidas, I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? And that was a thing that sort of struck on. Why do I need Reebok? Why does he need Reebok? He's he's a retailer. He's not going to use my shoes. He's going to try and sell them. So uh, fortunately, the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association, they produced a handbook. And in that was about 200, 250 clubs. And we had the name and address of every secretary. So write letters. So I would build in the business in the UK direct with athletes because, right, and, and we got a lot of agents out of that, and that really grew our business. I think it really developed our image as well. Also, our image, these are the people who make athletic shoes. But athletic shoes is a small market in the UK. Yeah, America, different. You have colleges, universities. They all have coaches. And you can get a scholarship, an athletic scholarship. You can't do that in the UK. That didn't happen. So they, they would sell lots and lots of or lots and lots of demand for athletic shoes. That's our business. 1968, the British government decided they would like to help the uh, sports trade do exports. So what they would do, they would pay for us a, a stand uh, at NSGA, National Sporting Goods Association in, America, in Chicago. They'd pay for us a stand and they'd pay our return airfare and half of the hotel bill. Couldn't turn that down, really. <laughs> <laughs> so with a friend, uh, Bob Brigham, he, he's, he's in the outdoor business. Um, we, we, went to, we went to the first Chicago show. Well, out for Chicago show next, and uh, he got to, he got some orders for his climbing boots. We were making his climbing look at the time, so that was good. We'd got some orders. I couldn't get orders for the running shoes, and uh, because we were saying, "Love your shoes, great." Where where do we get them? And I said, "England," and they said, "New England." <laughs> no, no, across the world. Oh, but they didn't want to import. They when you get your shoes over here, brilliant. You know what? We'll have a look at them. 1979, 11 years later, I got my distributor, Paul Feynman. Uh, how did I get there? Well, 1968, the running business, running was taken off in America. And all through the 70s, running was growing tremendously. Demand for running, running shoes, was just growing. Uh, and it was a magazine, Runner's World. And Bob Anderson uh, published that. And... Uh, <laughs> I think really that Nike grew off what Runners World created, this this real boom in running, and it became tremendous. And so the look was that look, we're going to America, and this is this is really growing. And Bob Anderson, he'd got so big that he could tell people what shoes to wear, and he used to have a, a shoe edition every August, I think it was. And that shoe edition, he would tell you which was the number one shoe, number two, and he'd rate it. <laughs> Trouble is, if you were number one shoe, and we weren't at that time, Nike was. But Nike were importing shoes from the Far East, Japan in particular. And by the time, the demand, you can imagine, number one shoe is Nike, whatever it was, uh, Vancouver. Um, by the time they got that, so the retailers could actually sell it, Six months have gone by because it takes a long time to the demand. You know, there's 200 million athletes or runners want a pair of shoes. How do you supply? 
Bob Anderson did this for a couple of years, and then the retail business uh, retailers had absolutely gone mad with him because they were getting stuck with shoes as soon as it changed. They couldn't get the shoes. When it went. So he changed it to star ratings, our opportunity. Star ratings, if you've got a five-star, you're at the top. And there could be four or five stars. So there could be a Nike, a New Balance, uh, a Reebok, and probably an Etonic or something like that. The, but that was it. So I designed a five-star shoe. And that was Aztec. In fact, I designed a gold range. We call it a gold range because we had Aztec, which was the road trainer. Uh, we had Midas, which was a racing shoe, road racing shoe. And we had Inca, which was a spike track shoe. And we took those to the 1978 Empire Games, oh, Empire Games, Commonwealth Games, <laughs> ex-Empire, Commonwealth Games in, in Edmonton. We really did well. Fantastic. And so in January, of uh, well, February, February of 1979, we had the shoe there. And uh, came up, came along. They were interested very much. They'd like 25,000 pairs. Oh, our factory, that would take them six months to do 25,000 pairs. But we'd, we'd realized that if we were going to break into the American market, if this was going to be a success, we needed help. And Barter had promised to help us. They, we, we could get some shoes made at Barter. But then they also wanted a better price. And we knew that also because... This, you know, everything was going to the Far East as far as price was concerned, and we'd have to go to uh, South Korea. So I'd already got people alerted that could we, you know, are we interested? And they were all, they were interested. However, this is January, and the, uh, um, the magazine wouldn't come out until August. And Paul Feynman also came along in January because he was a bit tired of the business he was doing. Boston Camping was his place, and they were just selling camping equipment fishing, all this, uh, with his, that was with his brother and his brother-in-law. And I think they were just about tired of each other's company. And he, he said, look, I'd love to do it, Joe. He said, but we need a five-star shoe. I said, Paul, this is going to be a five-star shoe, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, however, I went back once or forward to America for a couple of times before this issue was out. And when the issue was out, uh, I think it was probably the last week in July, I phoned Paul and said, Paul, can you get down to the local kiosk and uh, get us Runner's World? It was, you know, I think it was about 12 o'clock when I phoned, but of course it was 7 a.m. in Boston, so he was a bit sort of weary and whatever. <laughs> However, he came back in an hour and said, Joe, Aztec, five stars. Well, that was it. For me, we'd got the five stars running. He said, but you also, Midas and Inca, they also got five stars. So we had three five-star shoes. For me, that was it, because we had an entree then into America. We'd got the hook, and, and we were in. And that's how we first got into America. However, volumes were doing nicely. There was a guy called Arnold Martinez. He was a tech rep, and he was down in Los Angeles. And his wife, Frankie, with her girlfriends, they were just going to these new things, these aerobic classes. Oh. And they were coming back and they were following. And Alan said, what do you do? And uh, I said, well, we're actually exercising to music. And it's great, absolutely great. Oh, what's it like? Come down and have a look. So the next one, Arnold was down there having a look at what Frankie and the girls were doing. And there was an instructor there. Um, and she was wearing running shoes, trainers. And half the class were wearing trainers. The other half, no shoes at all. But Arnold, that was a light bulb moment. That was, wow, 
why don't we make these girls a nice glove-like shoe with cushion sole just for aerobics? So he went back up to Boston to see Paul Fireman because Paul was producing all the running shoes and said, Paul, there's this new thing down in uh, Los Angeles. It's going to be big. It really is. And Paul saying, oh, come on. You know, we're doing great with running. But, you know, we've only just started really. We're only 18 months into this. We can't be playing about with something else. So Arnold went round to the back door and had a word with the production guy. He said, can you get me 200 pairs? Glove leather, nice, soft. And he did. And Arnold distributed those in L.A. And then we get Jane Fonda wearing them in her workout uh, videos. The whole thing starts to take off. But what it was that everybody knew Nike in those days. Everybody knew Adidas, male, sweaty. (laughs) (laughs) This nice, pretty little company with a union jack called Weebok. That's for us. We became a women's company. The women loved it. The first three months of those shoes, they fell apart because they were made of glove leather, and glove leather doesn't work. And I was, I was almost dying at the thought that was around me. But the Americans were forgiving. The Americans, the girls didn't worry. So, you know, they, they, two months of these shoes, and they had to go and buy a new pair of shoes. This is what they did. After about three months, though, we did, we did get it right. We got the leather people to make it right. That the company from nine, $9 million to $30 million to $300 million to $900 million in successive wow. years. Wow. Right. I'd like to talk about the, um, the female side of the brand in a moment because I think you were quite pioneering in that area. Got one more question about um, your Reebok journey, and then we're going to move into um, you know, post-Reebok and what you've been doing since. Then back a bit into Reebok and then into the quick fire round. Okay. So could you share three specific things you learned uh, bobbing and weaving and competing against Nike and Adidas? Well, I mean, surprisingly enough, the, the early days we were probably uh, – we, we didn't compete with Adidas because we, we were in running. Um, Adidas, Adidas was slow. They were, they were okay at track and field. I mean, we've got to separate track and field from running. Yeah. They were okay at track and field. They were big, but they didn't pick up on the running scene. So w- if we were in comp- competition with anybody, it was Nike. And uh, yes, you know, you, you're going along. I like Nike. I, I knew Jeff Johnson. He was sort of almost number two after Bill Borman. Bill Borman was part of Nike. Um, I knew Jeff Johnson. He was a great guy. Uh, but, but I never met Phil Knight. Let's try and put that right one of these days. <laughs> uh, but, yes, there were competitions. But all of a sudden, we were taken away from that. We were taken away into aerobics. And Nike sat back. Adidas, don't even think they heard of it to begin with. Sikoni and all the others, it's just, it's just a craze. So we didn't have that sort of having to fight. Right. Because the, the aerobics scene just took off. In fact, in, instead of sort of building your brand, the brand was building us. The women, they just, the women just took it. That was it. It was like, you know, I mean, I've given you the numbers. Now, there are two things that probably come to mind when you think about that. How do you finance that? Because everything's coming from the Far East. You don't get credit from the Far East. You, you've got to put your money in. Um, and how do you get the production? 
which is the biggest problem. How do you get the volumes? And this is where, with Nike, Nike were going, well, they were a big company, but all of a sudden they hit a wall. They hit a wall and they had to cut the, uh, the supplies from the factories. We were using the same factories. So they had to cut the supplies. Now, I think you know, when we talk about anything, you've got to put luck in there. And the luck had it that the, the, the running grew so rapidly. And the other thing is that Nike hit that particular wall at the time, and we were able to absorb that production. So if those things hadn't have happened, you could have seen the demand you know, outstripping our, our supply so much that we were starving the market. If you start to starve a market, you fail. So we, we got up to, well, I left and we were just under 4 billion. But wow. when I, at, the, at 4 billion, with, you know, there was no excitement. And to me, there was no excitement. The excitement, I, I'd gone through 10 years of traveling around the world three times every year, building, putting on distributions. Um, you know, we'd seen we'd seen aerobic grow this, this fantastic demand. All of a sudden, lawyers, accountants, men who could uh, pack and stock and sort of all, get all your orders in front. So, for me, that's when the uh, the challenge you've got. I was in an airplane going to different places, picked up by a limousine, taken to the best hotels, uh, meeting the right guys, and dining at the right places. Uh, but you know. By that time, we were as big. So it was time for me to go because the challenge the challenge at that point had gone. But the, the ride had been extreme and fantastic. And we'd done Hollywood. We'd done Monte Carlo. The Monte Carlo events were, were incredible. So you know, all that excitement, all of a sudden we were now just being there. So you basically took it from nothing to $4 billion. And I believe, was it in 2005? Reebok was sold to Adidas, is that right? <clears throat> yes, yes. So yeah. could you tell us about why that sale happened and a bit about it? I don't know too much about it. I know why and I know the word for us and whatever, but uh, <clears throat> I had nothing at all to do with it. Let's say I left the company in uh, at the end of 1989. Right. <clears throat> but it was a bit like... Sorry, Joe. When you left... Was it at the sort of four billion level, or was that when it was sold to Adidas? No, it was then at the four billion level when I left. When I left, Did you leave? pardon? Why did you leave? The challenge had gone. There was wow. no longer this. You know, it, when it grows so big, it's like you know, you it needs a lot of people. And I say we have a lot of lawyers. <clears throat> we we have a lot of uh, accountants and people doing numbers. So it's, it becomes a numbers game. And uh, <clears throat> the challenge from when Jeff and I had started and what we had gone through and going to America and that absolute growth, you know, it had gone by that time. So I left. But uh, as I was saying, the, uh, but leaving is a bit like the Eagles and Hotel California. <laughs> you, can, you can check out, but you can never leave. <laughs> <laughs> and for so so. So many times it would be picking the phone and ring, Joe, can you redo this? What, what happened? They're, they're asking me questions. And, and you know, my life has been a series of just keep on going back and saying hello and, mm-hmm. and, and enjoying the people. But uh, <clears throat> when, it, when it comes to uh, what happened, 
I think that by the mid-90s, Reebok had, had run out of that steam. What had driven the engine wasn't the, wasn't the uh, say, wasn't the people. It was the business had driven the whole thing. And, and I think that by that time, management was struggling to put things in place, get things right, as to how do we start now? Now we've got here. How do we take over the, the machine? <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I think they, they didn't really get that right. Uh, it just kept going. And it kept um, – it was still only about four – it was less than four, I think, when, when it was sold to Adidas. And, of course, Adidas bought it because Adidas needed the momentum that they could see by buying Reebok. Reebok were big in, by that time, basketball. They were very, very good in basketball, um, aerobics. And so and, and they got known to be an American company, really, rather than a British company. got known to be an American company. And, uh, and so they bought it for that. And, of course, I think when, when Adidas bought it, Adidas put Reebok to one side and Sort of took the bits and pieces and put them into Adidas, and and, and that's what you would if you if you paid three point eight billion dollars for a company, <clears throat> you, you'd want to grow your company. They didn't buy it to grow Reebok; they bought it to grow Adidas. So so Reebok stagnated for quite some time after two thousand five, right. um, and and right now it's in the process. <clears throat> well, they, they say they're looking to sell it, and I think they've got a lot of people now very interested in buying Reebok. So it may well in the next month or so become under somebody else's ownership, which would be good for Reebok and probably good for Adidas because the Adidas and Reebok are not a good fit as companies working together. Uh, and Adidas didn't buy Reebok to have a different company. They, they bought what was good that they could use in Adidas. So it's like two companies running on the same line. And in order for uh, Reebok to grow, Adidas know very well what to do. But, of course, it means taking something off Adidas. So what is the point? So they've, they've tried to build Adidas, Reebok in a different way. Right. Two good things. Well, first of all, when somebody buys a company, they think they can change things. So they change the silhouette and they change the writing of the name. But 18 months, two years ago, they got a, a new – I think they've got somebody new on marketing. And he just – because. Reebok had got about five or six different images from uh, the Vector, the Starcrest, and then this Delta, and different names. So this guy came in and said, get rid of all that. We're now going back to the Vector. You can see it on the show. Back to the Vector and the, uh, the old Mototectura with the drop letter R. And now they started doing that. And just before they did that, they also decided that Reebok should have an archive, which is good. Because I had lots of stuff hanging around, up in the loft, everywhere, bits and pieces. Um, and uh, now it's all in Boston. It's all in one place in Boston. Because after a while, that's that sort of thing. They all get split up and they would disappear. But now we have lots and lots and lots of stuff. And they're all in the room. So now Reebok has a good archive. It also is back now with one message. And that's the same message with the Reebok. It's like Ford. Ford never changed that. You know, they got the left. You see Ford, and that's what you see. I mean, you just see that. Well, this, this is back now for Reebok. So somebody buying it now, I think, uh, you know, well, I'm happy to go along and uh, give a shout as well and see what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you heard it here first. So um, 
when Jeff Bezos stepped down at Amazon, he stepped down because he had, he had other projects he wanted to pursue. Did you have other projects you wanted to pursue set up in the background there, Joe? What have you been doing since Reebok? Or did you just go, I, I want out anymore? Did you still have shares? Did you sell your shares of the company? Just a little bit of a flavor of Joe post Reebok. Yeah. Joe post Reebok, I had sold up. I, I, I was out. <clears throat> what I didn't want to do was to be uh, an influence from afar. I, I, it was never Joe Foster. For me, it was always Reebok. So Reebok was the number one. Let Reebok go. And uh, for me, for three years, I just decided I'd go to Tenerife and just relax. <laughs> yeah. Bet you got bored of that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, it's good, but um, Tenerife is a rock. And you do get rock happy. You know, you can go around it in a day and you can do this, you can do that. Uh, plus the fact that Reebok kept on sort of saying, Joe, we, we can just have a look at this. So I, I, I was all, and, and for many years, and uh, for quite some time, I actually did some sourcing of bags for them because I was traveling. So why don't I travel? So I've done lots of little things outside of Reebok, apart from not wanting to be involved. You know, if you get involved, at what level do you get involved? It's, and I was better with working with products. So I had some fun doing doing bags for them. And uh, and, and Julie, who you know, Julie, she was with me at that time when we started doing bags after the uh, uh, after I left Reebok. But mainly it was uh, like thinking, well, what do you do? I've, I've been with the company that long. It's very difficult to sort of become something else. So I was happy to <clears throat> help do things as a come up and just relax and and enjoy myself. And we we know him <coughs> we live in France. We we lived in Tenerife for quite some time. The reason we left Tenerife is because my book was coming out. Yeah. People, pardon? Called Shoemaker behind you there. Oh, your... Shoemaker, yes, Shoemaker. That's that's the book. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. I mean people had asked me many, many times, why didn't you write your book? And I sort of put it off, put it off. No, no, no. But seven years ago, <laughs> seven years ago, I decided I would start writing. And it's taken that long. I, th <laughs> I think I had it all down in, in four years. But then you, you get people to look at it. And, but, you know, when you're writing the book, I'm writing the book and I'm going. Uh, and then, but I need to go that way uh, because I was also doing that. And so you need somebody to so I say, well, yeah, your story is brilliant, but there's too many bits and pieces to go in that way. So I had to get help to put it together. And, and then, of course, when you get a publisher, the publisher also wants to make sure that it works for them. So, yes, yeah, seven years it takes to get to get the book. But from Tenerife, I needed to get to the UK quite a bit because the publisher's in the UK. And we have a little dog. And every time you want to go back, you have to take the little dog with you. And the dog... Cost a thousand pounds a time to take <laughs> forwards. And of course, he's got to go in the holes and things like that. So we decided that <clears throat> let's set up in Tenerife and we'll have a look in France. So now we bought a place in France because we can actually drive from here when, when, when we have no COVID, of course. COVID stops us right now. We're, yeah. and, and plus, also, in uh, one of the things after sort of leaving Reebok is I have a lot of friends all around Europe because I put the whole distribution on. So it's nice. We're sitting here. I can go to Germany. I can go to Italy. I can go to Switzerland. Uh, we're, we're in France. And we can go up to Greece. All these people are there. They're all getting a bit older. 
Maybe some of them are not here anymore. Certainly in the UK, um, John Disley and uh, Chris Brasher are no longer with us. But uh, you know, these are the people that were working with me, and they're just nice to meet. And I mean, probably the first thing we'll do when COVID lets us is probably drive through to Italy and go to Sacramonte in in Varese, and just sit there and look at the view, the lakes and drink some wine with my friend Umberto. So don't know that that's the thing that I like doing now. But, of course, I have a mission, one mission left. Well, probably more missions, but one at the moment is a shoemaker. We, you know, you write a book, it's got to be, re- it's got to be read. So now we're, we're working on um, getting it into a bestseller in America. We get it to a bestseller in America because I believe in America. It's a, it will be a bestseller all over. So that's the mission now is to get people to read the book. Right. Well, then we need to give it a big shout out now. So Joe's book, Shoemaker, make sure you go and grab that on Amazon. A fascinating story and journey, taking it from nothing to uh, 30 million and 900 million and then 4 billion. That's amazing. You know, there's not many people in the world that have done that. So, Joe, are you up for a quick fire round? Of course. Yes. Carry on. So I've got maybe seven questions okay. in, in the quick fire round. Um, so top three business lessons, founding Reebok. Top three business lessons. Um, believe in yourself. Do it when you're young. And don't listen to too many people. Great. And uh, you were disruptive, I think, in the female element of uh, a brand. Like you said, um, loads of the people who were using your product were women and you went with it. And I think, I feel you were the first because now everyone seems to be uh, copying it and sort of jumping on the bandwagon. So um, would you say that that is accurate? And um, did you think that was a good move in Reebok to focus on women? Well, I think the women focused on us. <laughs> I, <clears throat> I think that it's, it's brilliant to focus on women. But the, one of the reasons that people like Adidas and, uh, and Nike um, just stepped back a bit, because a lot of people thought at that time, it's just a fad. It's something that will just be, <clears throat> it'll happen and go. <clears throat> it did happen and go, but it took 10, 12 years, and it grew Reebok into the biggest company. And, and I think what happened is, yes, Reebok were quick enough to say, why not? Because we could have been like Nike. We could have been like, I just said, well, step back. You know, you can't make it your business. But it, it took us on. And it was disruptive. But, you know, when you, when you look back and you think, Reebok could have done with growing slower because it could have got more strength behind it. And, and I think that would have been good. But the growth was fantastic. The journey was absolutely incredible. What would you do differently if you set up Reebok today? Again, I've been asked that question, and it's very difficult to answer. main reason is that when you become the number one global sportswear brand, what can you do different that can ensure that you would be number one sportswear brand? <laughs> yeah. I know it's a bad question. I, I asked my friend Neville Wright, who's worth 100 plus million, what would you do differently with kiddie care? Because he sold it if you started again. And he said, well, I'm worth 100 million. I'm happy. Why would I do anything different? So I realized sometimes that's a bad, that's a bad question. All right, let me, 
contextualize it. In this changing world of social media and brand collaborations, you know, I think Reebok collaborated with Conor McGregor, Shaq, you know, people like that. So what would you do differently if you were setting up Reebok in this social media internet-y world? Is that a better question or not? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's not that it's uh, anything different. I think it's a very good question because it's like saying, you know, okay, at 1958, how can you do that in 2001? What's the, what's the, well, there's a lot of difference. And one of the differences is what we are doing now, technology. Technology is the big difference. I used to have to, all through my time, when I, I was on an airplane. I was. I had to travel. I didn't have a mobile phone. I didn't have a computer. I, all I had, the best, was a calculator. So making decisions. Now, now you can talk to people. Now we can do what we're doing. You know, we're talking now uh, with the UK. You know, we, we're talking with uh, Dubai. We're talking with Australia. And I, I think tomorrow we'll be talking again with the West Coast of America. So, you know, the different thing is now looking at how how you make your your impressions now, and yes, influencers now, you know, influencers influencers have been there since 1958 because Adidas were making replica T-shirts. Or <laughs> so what happened now is that the sports industry now is fashion. It's very much fashion. It very much des- decides what people will wear on the street. People are no longer wearing collars and ties and uh, street shoes. They're now wearing trainer-type shoes, if not trainers, and everything is relaxed and more comfortable. And communication, this is communication. <clears throat> so I think that uh, now I would have learned a lot more about technology. If I, if, Indeed, I don't know if I'd have been a shoemaker now, or maybe I would have been very much into technology, very much into it, and, and, uh, and growing with it. I mean, so it says, would, would you have been the same? Would you have been in the same business? I, I don't know. You know, um, shoes, yes. A lot of people ask me now what we do with shoes. And I, all I can say to people is you need visibility. You need the visibility, uh, which is influencers. And these days, influencers are not just the kids that roam on the street in a pair of trainers. Now, influencers are from Hollywood, whatever. And that's all they do, really. You know, some of them are just influencers. Uh, but it's visibility. That's what you get. You get visibility. And it costs a lot of money that way. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, carrying on with the quickfire round, what's the best advice you can remember receiving? The best advice I can remember receiving? Oh, I, I, I don't know really because I think you receive advice all during your life. And, uh, you know, it's uh, – I, I mean, I, I can remember a lot of people helping me. When do you say that's advice? You know, it's, I, I don't know. Um, Advice is, is difficult because uh, more, a, a lot of advice that I've received, either I wish I hadn't listened <laughs> or, or I wish I'd heard it. You know, it's like, yeah. yeah. That's my next question. What's the worst advice you ever received? Maybe that's an easier one to answer. But it's not that easy to answer. But the worst advice I was given is as you get to the point of uh, retiring away from something like, well, before retiring, Reebok, uh, I was said, look, you know, in, in order to worry or not worry about uh, the future in terms of taxation, et cetera, and family, you should push, put your shares into your family. And, you know, that way. But uh, as you've probably read, my daughter, unfortunately, she died. And, and if I had have put shares that way they would no longer be in the family it, 
so it was advice I didn't I didn't heed at the time, and and I'm I'm very glad I didn't heed it. I, I think it's far better off if you want to help your family is to set them up and say right, what do you want? What is your life? It's not what will you get when my life is over. It's what do you want in life, and can we help you achieve it? And that is far better. Um, but but I think people like accountants and lawyers. They, they have a pattern that they see and they see how things are moving. Um, I, I think what uh, I admire these days is something like um, Jim Ratcliffe. Do you know Jim Ratcliffe? Oh, Jim Ratcliffe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Billionaire, yeah. Jim Ratcliffe. Yeah. British billionaire. Yeah. yeah. That's right. But, but he has decided how he will work with his money. And, you know, now he's a Swiss national. His company's in Switzerland. He lives in Monte Carlo. He's down in New Zealand now playing with yachts. Um, and, uh, yeah, but he's given 100 billion to the, <clears throat> I think, 100, 100 million to Oxford to develop, uh, I think it's uh, antibiotics because antibiotics are now. You know, so, you know, it's like uh, advice is, is very difficult. And I think uh, you, you probably give yourself your best advice. Yeah, I I know that uh, probably my solicitor, that uh, was Derek Waller, he was very good. Certainly, uh, but he, you know, his advice was when we were going into a meeting to uh, um, to sort of work with distributors or to find, you know build the the distribution, and we'd have people we were talking to to build this distribution to put on. Uh, distributed, you had to go in there and you had to make sure that they came out as winners. That no good going in there and just beating them to death. So you you give them pieces of paper which have at least four clauses in that you can knock out. And right. some others you can do, you know, best endeavors and things like that. So that the lawyer of the people that you're going to work with or hope to work with as a distributor, their lawyer, he feels he's won. Or right. you, you don't beat him to death. So that's the advice is don't try and beat people down. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, okay. Is there one thing that's wrong with the world that you'd like to see changed? Only one thing. <laughs> the main thing. The main thing. Well, I, I think the, the problem with the world is that, you know, human beings are human beings. And, and I think the, the biggest problem is with, is with human nature because uh, – no matter what you do, if you give, you help, you do whatever, um, it's always defeated by human nature because you give somebody something here. This is this is fine. Now this will help you. Uh, what's next? They are, once you've given something, uh, it's always what's free. So giving things for free, I think, is is, is difficult because your people will always want more. Mm. You, you, you know, you don't really, uh, you don't gain anything given for free. And, and I think people need need to learn how to earn things. Mm. Um, and I guess right now we, we had a very peaceful time, I suppose, since World War II for 60 years. And I think now people are becoming disruptive. People mm. are not liking to see what's going on. Everybody wants it today. We, we see so much that, uh, oh, it's fantastic. Why don't we live on the Côte d'Azur, or why can't we all live in Hollywood or down there in California? And a lot of people want all this. Want, people want a lot because it's, I think it's put out to society now that this, this is desirable to have tons of money and go to nice places. But mm. 
Uh, and I think it takes a lot more now to make people happy. I think people are not as happy as uh, we were growing up young mm. with what we had around. I think people want more. And it's like it's almost uh, a position where you can't fill the desire that much all the time. So everybody's under pressure. And I'd hate to be a politician because <laughs> there's no win. There's no win being a politician. Boys and Charlie, who would, I, I don't envy them at all. I agree. This podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. So what does the word disruptive mean to you, Joe? Oh, disruptive means uh, changing things without asking permission. <laughs> I love that. That would be the perfect way to end the show. But we've got two more quick ones. Um, if there was one person who you'd love to listen to, or imagine I had them on this podcast and you'd definitely tune in, who would that one person be? I think Jim Radcliffe. I'd love to hear his story. I know he's not a purist. I mean, his businesses are probably not the best of businesses for the ecology of the world. But I think he made his mind up on lots of things. I know he had a conversation with uh, with Gordon Brown because, look, you know, if I'm going to pay tax, can we arrange something? Um, which he didn't. So he just went off. Mm. But I think he. He, I think he's a true patriot still because he's yeah. still racing in New Zealand under the British flag and he does lots of things. But he's doing this his way. So I'd like to, I'd like to hear his story, although I don't, I don't think he's a man to tell his story. I think he's uh, quite happy to be what he's doing. Okay. Thanks, Joe. So your book, The Shoemaker, uh, we can get that on Amazon, can we? Yes, again, uh, Amazon, yes, and leading bookstores. But there's not many bookstores open these days in the UK, but okay. Amazon. Great. And is, yeah, there an Pardon? is there an audio version, or like on Audible? Yes, there, there's audio and there is Kindle. And it's Kindle. Kindle, great. That's good because lots, lots of my listeners like audio, but obviously they're listening to this on audio. So Shoemaker, grab that on yeah. Amazon, grab that on Audible. Um, whichever is your favourite format. Let's help um, Joe make this a, a global bestseller. Uh, an amazing story, Joe. Thank you. And where should we follow you? Is there any social media or anywhere we can go and follow your journey? Yes, we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram and, and LinkedIn. Um, and Clubhouse, by the way. Oh, yeah, you were in my Clubhouse room yesterday with Naveen Jane, weren't you? Oh, right. <laughs> Yes, yes Joe, look, I want to say thank you very much for your time. I'm very grateful. It's very kind of you. What an amazing story. Thanks for making a difference on this planet. And thank you for doing this interview. I'm very grateful. It's very good of you, Rob. It's been excellent. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank Great. you. Take care. Thank you. Great.